Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, please turn with me to the book of Hosea. Hosea. And if you need help finding Hosea, it is after the book of Daniel. Hosea chapter 5. Our focus is going to be verses 8 through 15 this evening. Hosea chapter 5, verses 8 through 15. Join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray now that your Spirit would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Lord, may we see the truth clearly. May you point us to Christ. May you show us our Savior. May we take great joy and great comfort in what you declare to us this evening. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Hosea chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God, written for you and for me today. Blow the ram's horn in Gebeah, the trumpets in Ramah, Cry aloud at Beth Aven. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precepts. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth, and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wounds, then Ephraim went to Assyria and said to King Jareth, Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wounds. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, when... God's people are rebelling in sin, and their leaders in many ways are leading that charge. A tragic situation becomes all the more worse. We're well familiar with this in our land, aren't we? We're well familiar with the scene of rebellion in Israel and Judah here through Hosea. Hosea has shown us how multi-layered and multifaceted that rebellion was. And yet as God made his case against them, as he exposed their sin and shamed them, he didn't leave any stone unturned. God didn't leave the cover in place on any layer of their lawbreaking. 
Remember how his divine exposing of them wasn't only regarding the people. God also spoke to and against the religious and civil leaders that he had placed over the people to lead and to govern and to shepherd and to guide and to discipline them according to his law. And yet the leaders were complicit in the sins of the people. The leaders stood as guilty, and even more so before the Lord of hosts. Now if you recall, God commanded all three, the priests, the people, and the house of the king, to do what? To hear, to pay attention, to listen up to his divine words of judgment. For though they hoped that their wooden idols and their divining staff would tell them that Hosea was just out to lunch and way off in his words to them, God said, for yours is the judgment. And God indicted the leaders because they had acted like hunters in high places like Mizpah and Tabor. They had acted like hunters in those places and setting snares and nets to trap the people in idolatry. Importantly, though God was out of Israel's sight and minds, sadly, they weren't out of his. In fact, they were center in his crosshairs. God knew them to the very core, to the very last wart, to the smallest speck of leaven and offense in their being. He knew them. There was nothing hidden from his sight. He knew their sin. And it was because of his deep and revealing knowledge of them that they would be punished, he said. As Israel and Judah both stumbled, it would be clear that the spirit of idolatry had its way with them in causing them to turn away instead of returning to their God with sincere repentance. And therefore, because of their sinful pride, Though they would later return, what would happen? They wouldn't find him, God said. For God had withdrawn from them. And thus we're reminded of the urgency of seeking the Lord while he allows himself to be found. Seeking the Lord while he allows himself to be found. And in our text tonight here, the Lord goes on to foretell of the people's cry in verses 8 and 9. The outpouring of divine wrath in 10 through 12, as well as God's pounce on them in verses 13 through 15. Look, at, look with me at verse 8 as we see the people cry out and we begin to see the nation's desolation. Again, verse 8 says, Blow the ram's horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry out, cry aloud at Bethaven. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Friends, when watchmen in Old Testament times saw an enemy approaching to attack, and in this case, Judah from the south, they would sound the alarm by blowing the ram's horn. They would sound the alarm by sounding the trumpet and crying out. And what's the significance of them doing so in Gebeah and Ramah and Bethaven? Well, it's interesting that God speaks of the alarm needing to be sounded in Gebeah and Ramah. Both towns were close to each other geographically. Gebeah was a frontier town in Judah, and Ramah was a frontier town in Israel. 
And so in saying this, God spoke of mourning going to both kingdoms. Gebeah was built by Asa on a hill. It was a place where troops were stationed to protect against the incursion of the ten tribes, if they were to try that. Ramah was a strong town that was an inlet into Judah. And it was built on a high hill, which made it fit to be a watchtower. Now, we've heard of Bethaven, previously called Bethel before. And it seems to have already been seized upon by the enemy here when Hosea wrote these words. And therefore, the trumpet is not sounded there. But Hosea tells us of the outcries from the people, doesn't he? Cry aloud, he says. All three of these were Benjamite towns that ran in a straight line going north from Jerusalem. And at various times in history, these towns were owned by one kingdom or the other. How do we know this to be true? Well, turn with me in 1 Kings chapter 15, if you would. 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. We read there, Now there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. And Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimah, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Bashah, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from you. So Ben-Hadad heeded king Asa, and sent the captains of his army against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Chinnereth, with all the land of Naphtali. Now it happened when Bashah heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Basha had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. And so we see here what transpired regarding Gebeah, regarding Ramah. We even see, as we heard in the context last week, regarding Mizpah and its origins, didn't we? And so Hosea's call for Benjamin... Back in Hosea 5, Hosea's call for Benjamin to look out behind you was quite poignant considering where the attack of the Syrians would come. Look at verse 9. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. 
So, beloved, the, the whole kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel would be cut off when the day of rebuke would come. And what was the day of rebuke? Well, it was the day that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, would come up with all of his forces. And on that day, they would besiege, they would sack, they would take all of their cities captive, including Samaria. God's divine rebuke and punishment would come through this hard hand of the Assyrians. And notice what God would make known, that which was sure. He would make known what was happening and make it clear for all to see. Again, whereas Israel turned to wooden idols and divination rods, desiring their corrupt priests to tell them what Hosea said wouldn't come true, God would make his judgments known. They were sufficiently warned and they were given time to turn. But God declared that what would be an irrevocable judgment, that they wouldn't be able to evade or overcome, that that would be coming. Ephraim would be desolate. Desolate. Beloved, never forget that the destruction of unrepentant sinners is something that will surely be. For sure, you can take it to the bank. God declares that to be true in his word. It isn't just talk to frighten people, but it is an irrevocable sentence by the holy and living God. And therefore, we need to recognize the great mercy that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he makes this known to us. That we have been given timely warning of the danger. That we may flee from the wrath to come and unto Christ. And praise the Lord for those of you who are sitting here. That by the act of his saving grace in your heart and life, he has saved you and drawn you to himself, but this is true of you. You have fled, and you've run to Christ. But even so, as we consider those who aren't believing, who haven't heard, who haven't believed, all the more urgency to see this timely warning of danger for the coming day of the Lord is coming. When Christ comes to judge the world, Indeed, the call is, flee from the wrath to come and turn to Jesus in true faith. And so Hosea goes on to tell more of the reasons for the outpouring of God's wrath in verse 10 through 12. So he speaks of making known all that will be sure. But then see the wrath that he speaks of in verse 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. <coughs> my friends, the princes, the great men of Judah who surrounded the king, the rulers and the governors of the land sinned against the Lord. We've seen that. We've considered that for many weeks. And here Hosea points to the severity of their sin. In the Lord's eyes, what they did was like one removing a landmark. And what landmarks is Hosea talking about here? 
Would it be the equivalent to removing historic monuments or statues today? Well, the Hebrew word for landmark, it literally refers to a border or a boundary of a territory. Hosea is pointing to the princes being like those who would try to move and adjust and tweak the borderlines of the kingdom to their advantage. That was a violation of the covenant. God's law in Deuteronomy 19.14 forbade moving the boundary lines of the promised land. In verse 14 we read, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Think about that. Here is the great gift of the Lord. Here is the promised land given by God to his people. It's an inheritance. It's the land that the Lord was giving them to possess, and yet someone would go to try to move such a boundary that God had established? How dare they? But, yet some did try, right? And the law was set here by the Lord to warn and to prevent that. Proverbs 22, verse 28 says this, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Also, the Levites in Deuteronomy 27, 17 told the men of Israel, Curse is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. So again, the, the heinousness of the ruler's sin was known to the Lord and put before their face here by Hosea. And therefore, the Lord would pour out his wrath like water, he said. And, and see this dreadful picture here. God wouldn't send a trickle or a drizzle like it would be coming out of a faucet. He wouldn't pour it out like water coming out of some controlled dispenser into a cup. No, the, the, the princes were to grasp the full, flowing, powerful, overflowing torrent and flood of God's wrath that would quickly be upon them and desolate them. This language, beloved, should remind us of the devastating and, and the deadly wrath of God in the, the worldwide flood in Noah's day. And like the Egyptians and what they experienced in the Red Sea. And yet there is much more to come, even eternally for the wicked. Remember what the angel in Revelation 14 foretells will be true of the wicked. Those who worship the beast. Revelation 14, verse 10 says this, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is, note, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so, beloved, considering all of this, what is of tremendous comfort? The work of Christ for you and me. The work of Jesus Christ for you and me. Remember Jesus' words to Peter in John 18, 11. Peter had drawn his sword, and Jesus said, Put your sword into the sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Beloved, again, we, we talk about the gospel every week. We need to, we must. It is the wonderful word of God. It is the hope that we have in Christ. But hear this work of Christ. That when he was on the cross, he endured the eternal wrath of the living God. He endured his wrath that was poured out on him. He drank the cup that he told Peter he needed to drink. He must drink. He drank that cup to the dregs. He endured that wrath, that sinless Lamb of God. For it wasn't his sin that kept him there. It was ours. Well, praise the Lord for Christ. The great comfort of the work of Christ for you and me in that Jesus did drink the cup of his wrath to the dregs. And so what would the result of judgment be, did Hosea say? Israel would be oppressed and broken. Look at verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. And why? Because he is willing, he willingly walked by human precept. Oh, how the words of the Lord through this wonderful prophet are, are, are interwoven and flow and, and bring us back to the to the glorious messages here that we need to see, and even these acts of sin that, that are so offensive to the Lord that, that Israel committed and were a piece of the reason as to why God's wrath was upon them. Israel indeed brought this on themselves, we see here. Here's the fruit and consequences of not hearing, of not paying attention, of not listening to, like he commanded them to at the beginning of this chapter. And not returning to their covenant Lord. They willingly turned away from God and his law. And they turned to and embraced and lived according to the commands of Jeroboam and his successors. Who obliged all their subjects by a law to worship the calves at Dan and Bethel. And never go up to Jerusalem to worship. By decree of the king. Wicked king. Look at verse 12. Therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth, and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Beloved, like moths slowly chew on, and they, they make holes in, and they weaken the fabrics of clothes, right? You put mothballs in the closet, or you used to, right? I don't know if they do that anymore. But keep the moths out, because they'll destroy your clothes. So God would slowly weaken the ten tribes, he's saying here. He would do similar to Judah as well, like a worm gnawing on and, and bringing rot and decay to wood. Hosea said his divine actions would be forerunners to the final desolation brought to the kingdoms by Assyria and Babylon, respectively. And Hosea then gives another picture of what Israel and, Ju and Judah would do in their pain. Look at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wounds, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerah, 
Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wounds. My friends, as Israel and Judah both had already experienced some pain from affliction, and again, they, they did something surprising to some, and not surprising to others. Knowing their wounds, instead of turning to God for healing their misery from an enemy, turning to the one who could truly heal them in every sense of the word, who did they turn to? Their, their coming enemy. Assyria, for help. They put their hope into one who couldn't heal them. Instead of him who is faithful and true. Instead of the living God, who could heal them completely. See this pattern. They ignored the lawgiver, and they followed the sinful commands of Jeroboam. They turned from the great physician and ran to one who wasn't even a doctor. And who would hurt them even more. Remember, God would use them to bring desolation to the kingdom. And so what would God do, does he say in verse 14? For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. Beloved, they would be like helpless prey in the hunt and pounce of a lion. Notice, Christ is sometimes called the lion of the tribe of Judah. But here he is a lion against that tribe. See what God would do to a people that are secure in sin. And remember the roar, the, the, the power, the work of the lion that we learned about in Amos. In Amos chapters 1 and 3. No one could stop God from taking them down. And when he was finished, what would he do? He would walk away. And where would he go? Verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. And then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. These words should remind us of God's promise that he would withdraw from his people in verse 6. And here the Lord declared that he would withdraw from them with a specific purpose in doing so. He would do so to wake his people up to their senses. To bring them to their senses so that they would see their spiritual need for him. The threat of judgment was to be a motive for them to repent and obey, beloved. The potential of losing the experience of God's presence should have remained as an incentive for them to restore and to maintain personal holiness. So may we look at these pictures. See these pictures of the threats and the dreadful promises of judgment from the hand of God. And we would see the, the people's willful sin and their being blind and deaf to their Lord. That we would see the leadership failing and falling and carrying out the duties that God had called them to do. 
And all of this leading to the closer presence of judgment from God himself and that which he promised. But I'll leave you with this. May the alarm sound it. May the cry from the people, which was all too late, teach us an important lesson about prompt humility and repentance. Like Israel, it's too often and so easy to to minimize and to blow off the seriousness of our sin and the consequences of it in our minds and, and to continue in it. Even to run to others for solace and healing until it's too late. And then the consequences of our sin have their tragic effect in our lives. But also, with humility, take the view of holiness and justice and the righteousness of God with you tonight. Don't be quick to forget the wrath of God that is poured out and will be poured out on sinners because of their sin. And yet joy in the reality that the Holy God has provided a way of escape from His wrath through His mercy, through repentance and turning in true faith to His Son, Jesus Christ, who drank that cup of His wrath completely. No drop left. Praise Jesus for the way that He has made for you and for me. And though we may experience God's fatherly chastening, may such discipline by His grace be, be quick to bring us to our senses. Be quick to teach us that we would be quick in earnestly seeking His face. Because that's what we need to be doing. Each and every day, earnestly seeking His face. Praise God that He disciplines us, and that he teaches us even when we have turned away. Whether we recognize it or we're fully aware in open rebellion, may he be pleased to quickly turn us back to him, that we would repent, and that we would continue to earnestly seek his face. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together.